Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that uh, the gospel uh, is so powerful uh, that it shapes not just our relationship uh, with you, but how we think about every single part of our lives, uh, including how we think about the most important relationships to us, uh, including marriage. Uh, And so we pray this day that you would uh, help us to be switched on and attentive to your word. Uh, Help us to come with uh, humility, uh, ready to listen to what you've got to say, uh, ready uh, to be encouraged, to be corrected, uh, to have our minds uh, opened up even further to what your vision, uh, what your design for marriage is. Uh, so please, uh, we, we pray that you would watch over us. Help me to be faithful and clear uh, in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so I don't think there's any doubt that uh, broken marriages and families are extremely destructive. Uh, I guess I could prove that to you by quoting a whole bunch of statistics from a study Uh, that the ABS did uh, back in 2010. I could tell you about the findings of that study uh, that found that children from broken homes uh, have a much tougher time finishing school and finding jobs. Uh, It found that that, uh, their income as adults is on average 8% lower than those whose parents stayed together. Interesting. It found that they're much more likely to have multiple de facto relationships uh, as adults are because they want to protect themselves from marriage. Uh, it found uh, that girls from divorced families are nearly twice as likely to become teenage mums. Now, so I could prove to you that, uh, that broken marriages and families are, are destructive by quoting you a whole lot of stats, uh, but the truth is we don't need stats, do we? We don't really need the statistics. Uh, Anyone who's personally experienced or or even personally witnessed close at hand the heartbreak of of a separation and divorce, uh, a family being uh, ripped apart, if you've witnessed children who uh, have to grow up without the regular love and support of both their mum and their dad, uh, anyone who's seen those things or experienced those things knows uh, that there's no way, like there's no way around the fact that they're destructive. Uh, they impact kids. They impact adults. Right? This is a real issue in our society at large, and it's a real issue in the church. So it's really important uh, for us to work out what it looks like to have marriages that not only survive, but thrive. Uh, what does that look like? Now, of course, the next question is, why would the Bible have anything to say about what it looks like to have marriages that thrive? Like, surely we've moved on from what the Bible has to say. Some of you might have seen uh, the movie Chariots of Fire. Uh, it's a pretty old movie now. You should look it up. Uh, but the, the main character in the movie is a guy named Eric Liddell. Uh, he's a Scottish sprinter, later became a, a Christian missionary, a good uh, Presbyterian lad. And, uh, uh, but in the movie, this is one of the, the, the famous quotes. Right? Eric Liddell says, uh, God made me fast, so when I run, I feel his pleasure. That's an interesting way of putting it, right? Eric Liddell knew that uh, he kind of really came to life. He really thrived as a person when he was running, right? But because God made him fast. When he ran, he felt God's pleasure. Likewise, if you want to know how your marriage can thrive, if our community wants to know how marriages can thrive, uh, thrive we've got to consult God. Because just as God made Eric Liddell, he designed him with a particular purpose in mind, 
God designed marriage with a particular purpose in mind. So our marriages will only thrive uh, if we're living kind of in tune with God's purpose, uh, with God's design for marriage. And that's what we're exploring today. We've got to consult the, the kind of handbook, the manual on marriage that God's written out here. What is God's design for marriages that thrive? That, that's the big question. Uh, so like, you, you should have your Bible open because I don't want you to think this is what Aaron's saying. This is what God's saying, right? God's design for marriage uh, either connect card open, Bible open. Uh, first thing we've got to uh, deal with in the passage is verse 21. I'll have a look at there. Paul starts, uh, before he outlines God's design for marriage, uh, he says, we should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, this verse is kind of like a hinge. It connects chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, and uh, chapter 5, verse 22, through to chapter 6, verse 9. So if you look back to to verses 18 to 20, uh, this command to submit to one another is just another example of what it looks like to be filled with God's Spirit. You see from verse 18, it's talking about being filled with the Spirit. Uh, So as a community that's filled with God's Spirit, uh, we speak to one another with psalms, hymns and spiritual songs. We sing and and make melody in our hearts to the Lord. We give thanks to God, uh, to God the Father for everything. And we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Uh, that word submit's going to come up a bit uh, in today and the next couple of weeks. So, so what does it mean? That's an important question. Uh, literally, uh, it means uh, to line up underneath someone or something. So another really common usage of it in Paul's day uh, was soldiers being organised according to their ranks. Right? Each soldier, soldier had its place, as it were. Uh, So Paul's saying that that when uh, you genuinely uh, revere Christ, when you fear him, when you worship him, uh, you will submit to one another. We will submit to one another in the spirit-filled people of God. We won't be looking to our own interests and preferences first, uh, but to the interests and and preferences of others. We'll submit what we want to them. Uh, So on one level, uh, this is true of every Christian who's filled with the spirit. There should be this lifestyle of submissiveness, an attitude of submissiveness. So some people look at the verses following this, right? But particularly the ones we're about to look at, the ones where wives are directed to, to submit to their husbands. And this is what they say. They say, but, but surely verse 21 kind of cancels that out. Right? Like if every Christian is supposed to submit to one another, like what's a diff? Right? Uh, but that's just not quite true. It's not quite how it works. Right? Yes, every Christian should have this kind of general attitude of submissiveness. Uh, but it's clear from, from what follows that Paul also expects this attitude of submission uh, to be expressed in particular ways, in particular relationships. Like he goes bang, 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 three things, right? The section that follows, wives submit to their husbands, he says, children submit to their parents, and slaves submit to their masters. And in today's passage, he says the church should submit to Christ. So if you're okay with submit being the idea in those other relationships, it's a bit hard to kind of just make an exception for the whole issue of wives to their husbands. Of course, each of these relationships is different. right? Wives and children are not slaves. That's clear. Uh, women aren't supposed to act like children in their marriages. 
Like submission looks different, right? But, but there is this common thread. God's designed each of these relationships uh, to have a particular order to them. Uh, one party is supposed to submit to the other. Uh, we'll, we'll explore what that means. Right, because this is the first aspect of God's design for marriage. It's there uh, in verses 22 to 24. Right, this is God. Right, God calls wives to submit to their husbands. Let me read. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Uh, no doubt that kind of grates on some of you. Uh, to some extent, it grates on me. Right? But it's pretty clear, isn't it? God calls wives to submit to their husbands. And I can understand why this is, is controversial. Right? Over the years, lots of uh, men who uh, were professing Christians uh, have used verses like this to excuse behaviour towards women uh, that is just downright abusive, disgraceful, disgusting behaviour. Right? But, but it's actually a complete distortion of this passage. I hope you'll see that as we unpack it. But so what does God mean when he calls wives to submit to their husbands? There's a couple of things we've got to be kind of ground, uh, foundational things we've got to be clear on. Uh, first, we've got to recognise uh, that the idea of submission doesn't imply that there's any inherent inequality between men and women. Christianity teaches that men and women, husbands and wives, are both created in God's image. They're both given the task of ruling over creation in God's, on God's behalf. That's Genesis 1. Right? They both deserve to be treated with the same dignity and respect. But having said that, having the same dignity and respect doesn't mean that they always have the same role or authority. Those, those two things don't, don't have to follow. For example, if you were to be pulled over by a policeman for speeding, uh, you don't think that that policeman has greater dignity than you as a human being, inherently. Either they don't have greater value than you as a human being. No one thinks that. Uh, But you do recognise that he or she has been given a role by the government in this situation where you're called to submit to them. Same is true in the classroom, isn't it? A child doesn't have less dignity as a human being than a teacher, but we understand that the roles are different. The same is true in marriage. God, as the creator and ruler over all creation, has created husbands and wives equal. Yet, in his infinite wisdom, you might not understand it, he's given husbands the role of um, exercising godly authority. Headship. Paul calls it here. So that's the first thing. Not uh, inherent, uh, different roles doesn't imply different, inherently different uh, dignity or respect. A second, we should uh, recognise that God calls wives to submit to their husbands voluntarily and freely. Right? Submission is, is not to be forced or coerced or manipulated in any way, ever. Wives are to freely submit to their husbands because they know that their husbands love them. That's the context of the passage. A third thing. Uh, if you're here and you're a Christian woman, uh, this whole idea of submission 
uh, should not be a dirty word. It shouldn't be a shameful thing. Uh, After all, uh, all Christian women believe that Christ himself, the the glorious Son of God, uh, gives us the ultimate example of submission. Christ, when he was faced with, with the pain and suffering of his death, prayed to his Father, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup of suffering from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Christ willingly submits to his Father. He entrusts himself into his Father's hand. Right? And he does that because he knows that his Father loves him. You remember this, that the words of his father are ringing in, in his ears, right? This is my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. He knows that his father loves him. And so he's quite happy to entrust himself into his father's hands. And so far from being a shameful thing, it's actually an honour for Christian wives to seek to be like their Lord Jesus in willingly submitting to their husbands. But still, what what might that look like? Uh, Well, the truth is the Bible doesn't give lots of detail. I mean, you've you've read the passage. Not lots of detail in the specifics of what it looks like. Uh, But it doesn't mean that wives can never have an opinion. It doesn't mean that wives can't push back at their husbands, that they can't confront their husbands. It doesn't mean that they have to uh, become housewives who only wash dishes and bake cakes. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that they can't pursue a successful career or that they won't be better informed than their husbands about a whole lot of issues or that they won't be better equipped than their husbands to do a whole lot of things. It doesn't mean those things, but it does mean that God calls wives to submit to their husband's desire and their God-given calling, as it were, to love and serve them. So practically, what might that look like? Well, it might mean that that, uh, if you get home from work and your husband says, "Uh, look, I I want you to sit down on the couch, put up your feet, have a cup of tea, uh, because I'm organising dinner. Right? In that moment, God calls you to submit. (laughs) Right? Submit to your husband's desire to love and serve you. That's what he wants to do. Let him do it. Or if he says, look, if you want that coffee on a cold Saturday morning, it's raining, it's a horrible day, let me go and get it for you. Right? God calls you to submit to your husband's desire to love and serve you. Or, or perhaps a bit trickier. Maybe this is the rubber, kind of the pointy end of this. Uh, if your husband comes to you and says, look, uh, you know, we've been like really having trouble deciding what school to send the kids to. Uh, what ministry we should serve in, which town we should live in, whether uh, you should take that job. And the reality is we've got to make a call either way, right? And your husband says, I've been thinking and praying about it and I really feel we should do this, right? It's not just about me. I think it's best for you. I think it's best for our family. I think it's best for the gospel purposes, for the glory of God. In that moment... Like this happens really, right? But in that moment, God calls you to submit to your husband's desire to love and serve you and your family. You might have questions about that. But that's the first thing, right? God's design for marriage, uh, marriages that thrive, calls wives to submit to their husbands. Uh, Second, big chunk, verses 25 to 31. uh, God's design for marriage, uh, marriages that thrive, calls husbands to love their wives. 
Uh, in fact, these verses uh, call husbands to do five things for their wives. At first, verses, in verse 25, uh, God calls husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Uh, there's a lot of confusion about love in our culture. Uh, and the truth is, some pretty ordinary husbands, they say to their wives, don't they? Oh, look, look, honey, I love you. Like, take me back again and again and again. I love you. Right, so, so what does love actually look like? Uh, well, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says this. You can flick over if you want to. Uh, we're going to sort of camp here for a little while. Uh, 1 Corinthians 13 uh, from verse 4. Love is patient, he says. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It, it is not proud. It does not dishonour others. It is not self-seeking. It, it's not easily angered. It, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects and trusts and hopes and, and perseveres. Right, so I know these verses aren't specifically only about husbands, wives, you, you can refer to this as well. Right, but in the context of, of husbands loving their wives, uh, in this passage uh, we get eight things that loving husbands won't do and six things that they will do. So we're going to whip through them real quick. Right, what, that, what, what won't loving husbands do? Well, they won't be envious of their wives. Right, that they won't resent their wife's career success or, or the fact that she's got more friends than them or her talents or gifts or her abilities. Right? That they're not envious of their wife. They might admire her. They're not envious. Or they're not boastful. Or they know that anything they've achieved in life is a gift from God. Right? So not, they don't have tickets on themselves. And it follows. Like they're not boastful. They're not proud. Right? They're focused on loving their wives, not on loving themselves. That's a proud person. And loving husbands aren't rude to their wives. Right? They, they treat their wife and her family with understanding and kindness and respect. Are they not self-seeking? Right? They're, they're thinking not about what's best for them, but about what's best for their wife and, and for the family. Are they not easily angered? Right? Loving husbands have a really long fuse. They don't keep a record of wrongs. You know, the, the loving husband's not filing away every sin that their wife commits against them so they can dredge it up later on to use as ammunition. That's not loving. And our loving husbands rejoice in helping their wives to walk in line with God's truth. And Paul says love rejoices in the truth. Right? They never want to see their wife do foolish or, or even evil things right? because love does not delight in evil. That's what loving husbands don't do. And what do they do? Well, they're patient with their wives. Right? Quick to forgive, slow to judge. They're kind. Right? They're gentle and, and caring with their wife. A loving husband protect their wives. Now, that's not actually so much like physical protection. I mean, you hope a, a bloke might do that too sometimes. Uh, but the word there is actually to cover in this case, Paul's saying that love does not uncover the sins of someone else in a way that humiliates them. So for the husband, you know, you're not down the pub bagging out your wife to your mates. You're not kind of airing the dirty laundry of your marriage in a way that humiliates your wife. You're protecting her, you're covering it up. 
Our loving husbands trust their wives. Now, sometimes trust in a marriage it can be weakened for really good reasons. Sometimes the whole basis for trust has been destroyed. Right? But generally, husbands should not be cynical about their wives. They should trust them. And when married life gets hard, loving husbands keep the hope alive. Right? They're kind of fanning into flame the, the love in the marriage. They're persevering in the marriage. God's design for marriage calls uh, husbands to love their wives. So if you're here and you're a husband, if you were to do an audit of your life, of your marriage, through the lens of 1 Corinthians 13, uh, how do you reckon it would go? Maybe that's something you could do this week. I've been thinking about this, like maybe I need to confess some sin to my wife. God calls us to love our wives. And he calls us to give ourselves up for our wives. Right, That's the next thing, as Christ did for the church. And back in verse 23, you can look at that, but we saw that Christ is the head of the church and the church is his body, Right, the body of Christ. And yet despite being the head, Christ gives himself up for the church. Right, He dies for the church. And this is the picture, right? When husband and wife get married, they leave their respective families to become one flesh. They become a new body. And the husband, as the head of this new body, is not to lord it over his wife, but to give himself up for his wife, to lay down his life for his wife. He's called to be like Christ. And Paul's illustration there is is you're doing that because you cherish your wife. You love her as if she is your own body. The union is so deep. Uh, I heard a story the other day about a, a time when uh, the wife of one of the generals of King Cyrus uh, was accused of treachery. Uh, King Cyrus being the ruler of the Persian Empire, right? This wife, she's accused of treachery uh, and she's condemned to die. Uh, and the husband hears about it. He rushes into the palace. He throws himself on the ground before King Cyrus and he says, No, please, King Cyrus, let me die in my wife's place. And King Cyrus, he's actually a pretty sentimental kind of bloke, uh, and he was actually kind of quite moved by that. And the quote is, uh, love like this should not be spoiled by death. And so he pardons the couple, uh, he, he lets them go. And the husband says to his wife as they're walking away, he says, did you notice how the king looked at us when he pardoned us? And the wife says, oh, I had no eyes for the king. All I saw was the man who was willing to die in my place. No eyes for the king, she says. All I saw was the man who was willing to die in my place. So most of us husbands won't have the chance to give of ourselves for our wives in this ultimate way. But our challenge is to die to ourselves every moment of every day, isn't it? Like while we're waiting for the opportunity to throw ourselves in front of a bus for our wife, let's do some dishes. You know, like some husbands are all about the spectacular, but when the nappy needs to be changed or the kids need to be comforted at night or like die to ourselves daily, giving ourselves up for our wives, loving and serving our wives. Our third, God's design for marriage calls husbands to help their wives to become more holy. Uh, from verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. 
Right, a holy person is someone who is set apart holy, like WH, right? You get that? Holy uh, for God. That's what Christ wants for his bride, the church, right? He wants the church uh, to be devoted to him, to be captivated by him. Uh, that, that's his aim. Right? Likewise, uh, husbands should do everything they can uh, to keep uh, winning their wife's heart. Uh, so that their wife, over time, is increasingly devoted to them. Uh, and, of course, more importantly, uh, they should do everything they can uh, to seek to win their, heart, uh, their wife's heart for Christ. So that over time, their wife is more deeply devoted to him. That's holiness. So let me ask you, you could unpack this more, but I'm wondering, is your wife more deeply devoted to Christ because she's married to you? Has your intimacy drawn your wife closer to the Lord Jesus or further away? Our fourth, God's design for marriage calls husbands to cleanse their wives, right? Not kind of having a bath together, if that's what you're into, right? Verse 26 Uh, Christ is cleansing the church, Paul says, by uh, the washing with water through the word. Right, Paul's saying, as we soak our whole lives in God's word, uh, Christ is cleansing us. He's making us more and more like him. That's what Christ is doing for the church. Likewise, husbands should do whatever they can uh, to help their wives to soak in God's word. So they become more and more like Christ. So if you can free your wife up to go to a Bible study, to be in a discipleship group, to have 10 minutes a day to by herself to read the Bible, do that. And that leads to the fifth thing. Right? God's design for marriage calls husbands to help their wives, uh, as it were, to, to reach their full potential in Christ. Verse 27, Christ is at work so that one day the church can be presented to him as a radiant bride without stain or wrinkle or blemish. This is the end goal of Christ's marriage to the church, that the church would reach its full maturity and glory and beauty in Christ. Likewise, husbands should not kind of hold back their wives, disempower their wives, kind of squash their wives. They should do whatever they can to help their wives reach their full potential in Christ. They should seek to present them as, as glorious and beautiful and mature in Christ. Like, I hope you can see, looking at this and God's uh, design for husbands, I hope you can see why it's so disgraceful when Christian men use this whole idea of submission to excuse oppressive and even abusive behaviour towards women. Abuse is all about holding on to power so you can control and manipulate and oppress someone else. That is not being like Christ. Christ gave up his power to lay down his life for the church. So so a Christian husband who understands this will never oppress or intimidate or abuse their wife. Right? He'll love his wife as Christ loved the church. Incidentally, this is why we support channels of hope in the Solomon Islands, right? Something like, like 98% Christian, but 70% or something of Christian men think it's fine for them to hit their wives. And the, the, the whole protest, we're going to hear about it in a couple of weeks, but the whole project is about re-educating Christian leaders and Christian husbands because they just don't understand what marriage is. 
Anyway. Our third thing, verses 32 and 33. Uh, God's design for marriage is a profound mystery, Paul says. Uh, it's a mystery because when God designed marriage, right, way back in, in Genesis chapter 2, uh, he did it to point people towards the relationship between Christ and his church. I don't, I don't want you to miss the timing of that. Right? Before uh, Adam and Eve had sinned, in Genesis chapter 3, God the Father and the Son knew that one day the Son would give his life for the church. So what did they do? They created marriage and the roles of husband and wife within marriage to be a great kind of cosmic signpost to point people towards the relationship between Christ and his church. That's why the church is called the Bride of Christ. Right? The church freely and willingly submits to Christ. And we do that because our eyes have become fixed on who he is and, and what he's done. Like that woman who said to her husband, Oh, I've got no eyes for King Cyrus. I only see you, right? the, the one who is willing to die in my place. The more your eyes are fixed on Christ, the more you'll realise two things about yourself. The first thing you realise is that you are much, much, much more sinful than you ever thought. That might sound harsh, right? But you're so sinful that God's one and only Son had to die for you. He had to. You couldn't, there's no way you could clean yourself up. There's no way you could work yourself into God's good books. Christ had to die for you. That, that's humbling to realise. But it's only when you realise just how sinful you are, just how much you've been messing up your life when you've been in control, that you'll be willing to, to give up control of your life and submit to Christ. That's the first thing. But the second, if you fix your eyes on Christ, you also come to realise that you're much more loved than you could have ever thought. Right? Christ didn't just have to die for you, he, he wanted to die for you. For you. And the more you realise that, uh, the more you'll realise that it's safe. But it's safe uh, to do the scary thing of giving up control of your life and submitting to the Lord Jesus, entrusting yourself to him. Right? Because he's the one who is willing to die for you. And that's how this works in marriage, right? That the more that, that husbands and wives have their eyes fixed on the Lord Jesus the more they're able to, to say, oh, I've got no eyes for preserving my power and control in this marriage. Right? I've only got eyes for Christ. The more they can say that, the more they'll be able to live out God's design for marriage. But the wife, whose eyes are fixed on Christ, she'll be able to give up her desire to hold on to her power or perhaps to assert her power and freely and willingly submit to her husband. Right? She'll entrust herself to him, not just cause, but because she knows that it's safe. She knows that her husband uh, loves her like Christ because he's been captured by the one who loved him and gave himself. Right? And the husband whose eyes are on Christ will give up his desire to, to hold on to power and control in the marriage and perhaps use it to lord over his wife or oppress his wife. Right? He'll freely and willingly uh, love his wife, giving himself up for his wife, just as Christ gave up his life for his bride. 
right? Fixing our eyes on Christ, the one who is willing to give himself for us, is the key if we want to live out God's design for marriage and not have our marriages be distorted by our own sinful desires for power and control. That's why this passage comes at the end of chapter 5, right? It's directions, uh, you might have questions about this, right? But it's directions for Christian husbands and wives whose lives have been transformed by the gospel and filled with the Spirit. This is the key. If we want to have marriages that that not only survive, but thrive. Uh, So what I'm going to do now, uh, yeah, what I'm going to do now is pray. Then we're going to sing a song. And then, uh, so if the music team wants to come up, and then we'll have some Q&A if you've got questions. So let me pray. Uh, Lord God, uh, thank you uh, that we know that you are good and wise and loving because you sent your son, our Lord Jesus, uh, to die in our place on the cross. And so we thank you that uh, even if we, uh, parts of your design for marriage, as we see it here in in your word, are great on us or we find it hard to get, uh, we know that you must have loving and good and wise reasons for designing marriage in this way. And so we we pray that uh, you would help us to to get our heads and our hearts around your design for marriage. And we pray that you would help us to fix our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, as that really is the key uh, for being able to live out this vision. Uh, We pray in, in his name and for his glory. Amen.